Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by... I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And if you have a Bible to hand, do turn back to Exodus chapter 33. It's on page 92 of the 
pew Bibles. And on the back of our green service sheet, there is a little outline of our sermon, which you might find helpful to have to hand as well over the next few minutes as we proceed together this morning. But uh, as we do turn back to God's word, let's pray together. We've just been singing these words, only by grace can we stand, not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. And Father, as we look at these ancient words from Exodus 33, would you help us to believe afresh that those words are true, both regarding our personal human endeavor, but also regarding the blood of the Lamb. Help us to be people who leave here this morning rejoicing afresh in all that has been done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some time ago, when I was part of a different church family, a man came to see me. He was clearly very upset. I should say he has no connection with anyone here at Christ Church Forward. Uh, and he, as he came and spoke to me, he described how decades ago there had been a, a terrible breakdown in his wider family. He had a number of siblings, and for decades, they hadn't been able to have any kind of interaction at all between himself and the rest of his siblings. Um, it was a tremendous fracturing in the family. Uh, they couldn't uh, write letters or, or phone each other or, or visit at all, completely cut off from one another. But then recently, things had thawed in that relationship wonderfully. And they had begun to communicate once again. There had been a number of phone calls, a letter here and there, and they'd even been able to visit personally, face to face. And so very encouraging signs towards reconciliation within this family. And yet here is a man coming to see me, clearly massively upset. And the question he was grappling with in his mind is the question there on the back of our handouts. Will the relationship ever be the same again? You see, on one hand, he had found a way to forgive the wrongs that were committed. There had been reconciliation in some ways. And yet, he described to me how he struggled to trust the rest of his family now, after what's happened. In fact, he even struggled to want to be in the same room as them. Such were all the feelings from the past. And he wanted to work through with me whether it would ever be the same again. How would it be the same again? You see, when breakdown occurs in our human relationships, there's a a splintering and a a fracture which occurs across lots of levels in our relationships. And there can be healing and reconciliation at one level, but deep wounds persist at another level. And I think that's very much the scene before us here in Exodus 33. As we look at the relationship Not between two humans, but between God and his people. Last week in Exodus 32, we saw the people of God commit a great sin against the Lord. Having just entered into a special covenant relationship with him, they did the spiritual equivalent to having an affair on their wedding night as they bowed down and worshipped a golden calf. And our chapter this morning, Exodus 33, shows us the aftermath of this shattered relationship between God and his people. And the big question for us this morning is, will that relationship ever be the same again? 
for sin has done a destructive work in that relationship and there are repercussions throughout this chapter because of it. I should say for us as we gather here this morning, this isn't some academic question for people all back then. For we too as Christians are people who have been rescued by God out of slavery to sin and yet if we know our hearts, we are very able to turn against the Lord and to be massively unfaithful and to sin against him. When that happens, can our relationship with God ever be the same again? It's a question we're bound to grapple with as Christians. Well, as we turn to Exodus 33, I think we get some um, tremendous insights into that question. Well, as we look at the aftermath of this terrible sequence of events regarding the golden calf, I think we get three vital answers for us this morning. First, and painfully, we need to see again the, the devastating results of sin. Back in Exodus 32, the initial results of sin were devastating. We read that 3,000 people died in the initial chaos that ensued from the golden calf, probably the ringleaders of that particular moment. But then later on in the chapter, we find Moses um, interceding for the people, and it seems God relents. And yet again, verse 35, at the end of Exodus 32, we discover God sending a plague onto the people. Another level of, of judgment, if you like. And so we pick up the story, Exodus 33, wondering what will happen next. It's the kind of thing we want to draw a line under as quickly as possible and move on with the rest of the story. It's been a terrible episode. And initially, the signs look promising that this relationship is okay again because of what happens, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. It's an encouraging moment, isn't it? It has been a very difficult chapter, Exodus 32. And yet here God says, um, go now to the promised land. And that's been the plan all along, to get the people out of Egypt back into the promised land. And here God seems to be saying, the plan is still intact. Very encouraging. And, and we find in verse 2 that God will even send an angel to go before the people to um, make a way for them amongst the nations in that land. Again, very encouraging signs. But then comes the devastating blow of verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. This is a disaster. This is like receiving the travel tickets for your honeymoon at the same time as a letter from your fiancé saying the wedding is off. The journey will still go ahead, but only one person is going. A close, personal relationship between God, the Lord, and his people. The great goal of the story now seems to be over. The Bible doesn't use bold typeface or um, capital letters to emphasize a point, but often it uses repetition to make sure we've got it. Or we can't miss it here in Exodus 33. After the verse 3 and the terrible words, we'll look at verse 5. The Lord has said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. 
Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. The devastating results of sin. The Lord can no longer be with his people. Yes, the initial crisis is over. Yes, at some level there's been reconciliation. There isn't immediate judgment about to fall on the people. And yet here in the aftermath, we discover the Lord cannot journey with his people. We see that uh, the Lord says that they are a stiff-necked people. They have a track record of rebelling against him. And I think it means the Lord can no longer trust the people to live for him. He has no confidence that in the future they won't turn and rebel against him again as they have in the past. And we see this kind of ripple effect in our human relationships, don't we? Uh, Growing up, there was one boy at my school who was particularly known for lying. Remember in the early days, he used to come back after the weekend and tell us all kinds of tremendous stories about his weekend. And we used to be very impressed by what happened But as the stories kept coming week after week, we started to realize that he was exaggerating some of the details and leaving out other crucial facts. And once we realized he had a habit of lying, well, after that, we just didn't listen to him anymore. You see, there are repercussions from our behavior in our human relationships. Well, so too here with our relationship with God, the the people have shown they are stiff-necked. And the Lord says, I cannot go with you. We've seen throughout Exodus that the Lord is a holy God and when you mix his white hot holiness with persistent rebellion, someone will die. And so by Exodus 33 verse five, this wonderful new relationship between the Lord and his people that we've been looking at through Exodus, well by now in any meaningful sense, it seems to be over. And it's no wonder the response of verse 6, the people take off their ornaments, a sign of grief and mourning at the news. Terrible, devastating results of sin. These are hard words for us this morning. They are uncomfortable to hear. I was having a discussion with a few people last week about the benefits or otherwise of reading the final page of a story before the first page. I've got a friend who has to read the last page first. They can't progress with the story otherwise. And there may be a few here today who are last page first people. I don't know. We can have a discussion about the merits of that afterwards. But which is better, to read the last page first or the first page first when it comes to a book? When it comes to the Bible, may I suggest we must do both. We need to know how the story ends. And if you know your Bibles, you know the story does end at the end of the Bible with God living with his people in the the garden city in a restored and perfected and eternal relationship. It is a wonderful, thrilling ending. But we must not rush too quickly to that ending for the details along the way matter greatly for the impact of the story. And here in Exodus 33, we find that along the way, sin has devastating results to the relationship between God and his people. Uh, The story in Exodus at times races along. Generations, decades, even centuries fly by in a number of verses. At other times, the pace of the story almost stops. It grinds to a halt. 
And here in Exodus 32 to 34, it's one of those moments where the details just slow down and we are forced to linger over the agonizing details of sin. For the message of Exodus is partly about how humanity rebels against the Lord. And I think the truth is that if we had been there at the mountain, we would have done the same thing as the people of God back then. Not perhaps in terms of modern day language to to create a, a golden calf to worship, but able to rebel in just the same way. Rebel by rejecting God's word and worshiping him in a way he doesn't want from us. When we lie to one another, when we hate one another, or gossip, or envy, or lust, when we fail to love God or our neighbor with all our hearts, these are acts of unfaithfulness. And Exodus would confront us with just how serious these acts are before the Lord. And left on our own, we are no better off than the people of Israel in Exodus 33 verse 6 with the terrible news that the Lord won't go with them. And it would be right for us to, if you like, cast our ornaments on the ground. Terrible news. Of course, this is not the end of the story. We keep reading through Exodus, and as we keep reading, we discover wonderful news. And so having seen the devastating results of sin, next we see the decisive role of a mediator, The camera zooms from what I imagine to be the Israelites in little huddles and and groups sitting on the desert floor with their ornaments sort of cast around them in piles, mourning over the news. The camera zooms from that picture to a little tent out in the desert away from the, the, the main camp. And after the glory of the tabernacle that we've heard about over the last few weeks, this other little tent seems like, well, nothing at all, really. Just a little uh, tent for a couple of people outside the camp, far from the rest of the people. And yet, this, ca- this little tent is a most special tent. Verse 9. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. It is called the tent of meeting because it's the place where the Lord met with Moses. The tabernacle also was called the tent of meeting, but uh, it hasn't worked so far for, for the people as a whole. But here we see that Moses and the Lord, their relationship is still intact. And it's very clear that it's only Moses and the Lord. The people have to stand at a distance. They stand at their own private tent doorways looking on as Moses himself goes to that special tent and himself meets with the Lord. Why why does the camera pan to this tent now when there's so much agony happening amongst the Israelites? Well, I think we're meant to see that Moses is a man who is in fellowship with the Lord. After all, he was not part of the great sin of the golden calf. He was with Joshua. The two of them were up the mountain with the Lord as the people sinned at the base of the mountain. And in a very clear and public way, God is showing the people that Moses is a man who is in fellowship with the Lord. And it is a most remarkable description of the fellowship. Verse 11, 
the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Remarkable fellowship that Moses enjoyed with the Lord. And it's in stark contrast with the people who no longer have the Lord with them. There may be some eagle-eyed amongst you who are a little bit um, uncomfortable at this stage about the language of the Lord speaking with Moses face to face. Because if we know our Bible as well, then we know that no one can see the Lord face to face and live. And in fact, in verse 20 of Exodus 33, we discover that very point. You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So how do we understand verse 11 in relationship to verse 20? It seems to be, can I dare I say it, a contradiction. Well, I think in part it helps to realize that that little phrase, face to face, is probably idiomatic. It's just a, a turn of phrase that wasn't to be taken literally, but it was to describe close, intimate fellowship between two parties with no barriers in between. Perfect fellowship. And also I think it's to con- contrast what Moses enjoyed with the Lord and with the rest of the people. The, the, the word for face in verse 11 is the same word used in verse 14 and verse 15 for the Lord's presence. And it seems that while Moses enjoyed face-to-face contact with the Lord, the people were cut off from his face, his presence. I think that's the contrast going on. And the point's very clear. Moses was able to be in God's presence. The people were not able to be. That's the, the heart of what we're discovering in these chapters, in these verses. Which means, of course, that unlike the people, Moses can talk with God. And that is what he does next. Have you seen the handout? We discover Moses is a man interceding for others. Moses comes before the Lord. You can imagine it's happening in the tent of meeting. And he, he speaks to the Lord. And in essence, his plea seems to be summed up at the end of verse 13. He says to the Lord, remember that this nation is your people. He's pleading for the Lord, don't abandon your people. Don't send us on our way without the Lord coming with us. The reply seems to be encouraging. The Lord said, verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Good news, it looks like, except I don't think it is because... The you in verse 14 is actually this in a singular. It's just a promise for Moses. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest, Moses. This isn't a comment about the people in general. That's why in verse 15, Moses persists. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses, a man interceding for others. And wonderfully, the Lord responds, verse 17. I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. It is a remarkable moment in history. The Lord relents. He will now go with the people on their journey up to the promised lands. If you like, the relationship is back on. Because there is a mediator who could speak to God on behalf of the people. And in verse 17, one whom the Lord is pleased with. The Lord knows Moses' name. There is a mystery here. We've seen throughout Exodus that the Lord is 
sovereign and powerful of all nations. He has a plan about the future which he will carry out. All his promises come true. And yet we discover here that a man can pray and it looks like he changes God's mind. There is mystery here. And yet there is a sweet mystery here. Because the very reason why we can have fellowship with the Lord is because the sovereign Lord does hear the prayers of a mediator. Centuries later, we find the same pattern being copied and fulfilled. For what Moses could do in part and in shadow, the Lord Jesus has done perfectly for us. Last term, we looked at 1 John, um, 1 John 2 verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There is mystery here as well. The Father who has everything sorted out about the future, yet listens to his Son pleading in our defense that we might be forgiven when we sin. It's a wonderful, gracious mystery. And yet it is the picture we find of the Son pleading to the Father. He is the righteous one. He is the one who has enjoyed perfect fellowship with his father from eternity past. And so he can speak to the father on our behalf. And he does that even now, pleading for our forgiveness. This is no small thing. For without his intercessions, our sin would shatter our relationship with the father. I think by, by lingering over the agony of Exodus 33, and it is agonizing, isn't it? When we see what sin does to our relationship with the Lord, it helps us to understand just how precious it is to have the perfect one, Jesus Christ, interceding for us, knowing that he does indeed influence the Father to forgive us. What a wonderful thought. The decisive role of a mediator so often people on the outside of Christianity looking in think that Christianity is for good people. Well, Exodus 33 blows that out of the water. Christianity is for unfaithful people who very quickly rebel against the Lord and who can only enjoy a relationship with God because there is a mediator who comes and pleads on their behalf. It is not for good people. It is for people who've experienced that work for them through the Lord Jesus. I think also Exodus 33 shows us that if we are to understand our relationship with the Lord, we must not downplay the seriousness of sin, but rather to stress again and again the significance of the work of the mediator. That is how our relationship exists There is, of course, one other part of the story that we need to finish on this morning, and it is wonderful. We'll spend much more time on it next week. But for now, finally, we see also the divine revelation of mercy. There's been good news. The Lord has said to Moses, I'll do what you've asked. And then verse 18 comes, I think, a rather surprising question. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. It feels a bit like a gear change, a different topic altogether. Why does Moses ask for God's glory now at this point? In fact, throughout the whole book of Exodus, we've seen lots about God's glory. We've seen his power, 
his compassion, his love, his ability to defeat nations and rescue through a Red Sea. So why this plea for God's glory to be revealed? I think it's because he wants reassurance. He wants reassurance that the Lord isn't going to turn around and wipe out this stiff-necked people the next time they rebel. I think it's very similar to the moment back in Exodus 3 when God gave Moses his marching orders to go back to Egypt to rescue the people from Pharaoh. And at that point, Moses had a wobble. He needed reassurance from God that God would go with him to do such a wonderful thing. And again here in Exodus 33, I think Moses is having a wobble. He needs reassurance, not about God's raw power, but rather reassurance that God is not going to abandon his people on the way. What grounds does Moses have that in the future God will stick with his people and not turn away from them? Well, we discover in God's answer that the grounds for such confidence is not on the performance of the people of Israel or Moses as an excellent leader. No, it rests, verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here is the grounds for any confidence about the future that the Lord won't abandon his people. He is merciful and compassionate. We've met the Lord's name already in Exodus, back in Exodus 3. And here at this most crucial stage, we find it playing a key role again. The Lord, God's name, it means merciful and compassionate. This is something I think we find so hard to believe. We live in a culture that has become so ingrained with a sense of personal performance. Our schools are set to award achievements. We get prizes and recognition for good marks and hard work. In our jobs, we get performance-related pay, bonuses based on performance. We get promotions and opportunities at work based on our work. And so often we bring that perspective into our relationship with the Lord. If I can be good enough, Obedient enough, sin defeating enough, then I will enjoy more of God's presence and more of God's blessing. Then I will be certain God will never abandon me if I'm good enough. Performance related relationship. And of course, when we fail to meet our standards and God's standards, and it will happen, where are we left? Guilty, fearful, worried about the future that God will abandon us. But Exodus 33 shows us a very different platform for our confidence about the future. The only reason why the Lord will commit to a people like us is not because of our performance, but because of his great mercy. Many centuries later, the writers of the New Testament, John, talked about God revealing his glory all over again this time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is merciful and compassionate, the full revelation of God's remarkable, glorious character. And there may be some here this morning who need to gulp in the fresh air 
of God's mercy and compassion fully displayed in the Lord Jesus. Here is our confidence regarding the future, not in how much we can continue putting on a good face to other people or to God, but rather in the Lord's merciful character towards us. Don't carry the burden. We can't impress God. He knows that. He is merciful. I began with the true story about a man struggling to know how to relate to his family. Sin in a very real way had caused such damage. Sadly, I don't know how the story ended for him and his family. I haven't seen him for years and years. We've lost contact. But I do know that when we think about our relationship with the Lord, I do know how that story ends. I do know what the future is like for that relationship. Yes, sin has caused a terrible fracture in that relationship. But because we have a perfect mediator and a merciful God, even now we can be utterly confident that one day we will see the Lord face to face and there'll be no guilt, no shame, and no worry about the future. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words. They are hard words this morning as we are confronted with what our sin does to our relationship with you. But we thank you that they cause us to run once again to our our perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. They cause us to run to your glory, your compassion and mercy. Father, we thank you that today we can be utterly confident about our future for we have a better mediator than Moses and a fuller revelation of your mercy in the Lord Jesus. Please help us to keep on rejoicing in that relationship, not taking it for granted until that day we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.